There's wonder in the world can a loving God bring about the consequences that we read about here in the book of Revelation? How in the world can, can God be the author of these things? You see, as we came to chapters 4 and 5, we saw the heavenly throne room, and in chapter 5, we saw a scroll that had seven seals on it in the hand of God. And we saw that the Lord Jesus Christ came and took the scroll from the hand of God, and He is getting ready to start opening those seals, which means that the things that were written in that scroll, God's plan and purpose for the earth and for this world that He created, they're going to start to transpire. And you know, it amazes me that the same people who will say, how can a loving God do these things, will also say, how can a loving God allow evil to go unchecked? How can God possibly let the horrible things that happen because of the sin of man in this world continue unfettered as man does unspeakable things to other human beings? And I would say to you, you can't have it both ways. You can't say God must be all loving, but God must be all just, because at times justice requires a reaction to evil. And that's what we see here in the book of Revelation chapter 6. We see the God who lovingly has given the world time after time of mercy. We, we see a God who, who has allowed evil to continue with the hope that the evil might repent now, coming to the place to where he deals with the anger and the horrible, horrible evil of this world, and it all comes to a head in the judgments that God visits upon this earth. Now, these judgments are a part of what the Bible describes as the Great Tribulation. And what we're going to see is the great tribulation aptly named because it is a time of God visiting judgment on this world. It has a purpose, and that purpose is to vanquish evil and to bring to a head the horrible, horrible behavior of man in this world as he has run amok and done whatever he pleases apart from God. And so here, starting in this sixth chapter, we see God begin to describe how He deals with the wickedness of man. Now, we call this the beginning of the end. The book of Revelation describes what many call the end times. And to really get things started as far as the apocalyptic nature, that is, the very end times, but also these terrible times that will be visited on the earth. The Word of God describes the opening of those seven seals in that scroll that we talked about earlier. And what I want us to do this morning is look at those seals. We'll look at six of them this morning, and we're going to see what that portends for this world and for this earth, because God has allowed His wrath to build up to this point and now, finally, the bowl of His wrath is ready to spill over, and man will reap the consequences. Now, as we come to the first part of this passage, we're going to see something very familiar to us. If you've done any study in prophecy, you hear of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. These are symbols 
of kinds of judgment that will come upon the earth at the hand of God. And bear in mind, as we look through the book of Revelation, remember this. Much of the language is symbolic. Again, John is taking first century imagery and he's using it to express things that haven't even happened yet. So these are important things for us to understand. They're hard for us to understand. And we get a glimpse into them by the descriptions that the Apostle John shares with us here in the book of Revelation. So these four horsemen, we're going to begin with the first horseman, and that's found in the first two verses of the book of Revelation. And what we're going to see is this. What John is prophesying is a conquering king that is going to come on the scene, and he's going to bring about a false peace, and it's symbolized by a white horse. So look at these verses. It says, Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, And I heard one of the four living creatures say with a loud voice, come. Now, what we're going to see is as each one of these horsemen are introduced, one of the living creatures is going to say, come and see. And it's a pattern that we'll get into for these first four seals. Now, the four living creatures were described for us earlier as we saw the throne room of God. And they are around God, worshiping God, praising God, but now they are announcing the purpose and the plan of God. And the first living creature announces the first seal. And notice how this seal is described, verse 2. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. Now, When we think of a white horse, maybe some of you grew up in the time where the Lone Ranger had silver. You know, the good guys wear white hats and ride white horses. Some of you, I know, that's right over the head because you were too young. But the idea of good guys in white, where where does that come from? In the first century, when a king conquered, particularly a Roman king, that king would enter the city after victory, often on a white horse. It was a statement of domination. It was a way of expressing to the world, we're victorious, and these conquering kings would not only have a white horse, but they would also have a crown. Now, the particular kind of crown is mentioned here. He was on a white horse, and its rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him. Now, this crown wasn't the type of crown that we think of in terms of a ruler wearing a kingly crown. It was basically a victor's crown. It was a wreath, very often, that would go on the head of the conquering king, and it was a way of, again, saying, not only with the white horse, but with this crown, we were victorious. But there's something very interesting about this writer as we look at his description here in the second verse. Notice he has a bow. But what do you need with a bow to make a bow work? Come on, hunters. Arrows, thank you. (laughs) The bow is mentioned, but no arrows. You see, the implication, I believe, in this text, and many Bible teachers would agree with us, is the idea that this conquering king conquers without warfare. The fact that arrows are absent and that there is only the bow, shows that he has power, that he has authority, but that he didn't have to use military might in order to secure 
His conquering place in this world, this, this place of leadership, this place of authority. So, what the Word of God is telling us, I think, in this description of this individual is that he has conquered and he has instituted a false peace in the world. But it's a peace that will not last. You know, there are many people who cry out for peace. There are many people who would love to see peace. And when we look at our world, we find that peace has not existed in our world very much. As a matter of fact, it's usually localized and it's usually very short-lived. When this passage describes this one who comes and initiates a bloodless peace, most of the world is going to look at that and they're going to say, well, that's a good deal. I'll take that. I would love to have peace with no conflict and to have it brought about without someone coming and conquering everyone with war and with blood. And the world is going to be duped by this because I believe that the person who is the rider on this white horse isn't Christ, isn't a good leader. I believe it's the Antichrist. Now, the Antichrist is a figure that we're going to see further developed as we go into the book of Revelation. But suffice it to say this, the Antichrist is one who stands against the purpose and the plan of God. He is a puppet ruler of Satan in this world, and he will play a a prominent role in the tribulation. So, as this first seal is introduced, we have this conqueror. He brings this false peace, and he comes into the world conquering in order to conquer. In other words, it's all about conquest. It's all about building this huge support, this large following. The Antichrist comes on the scene, and everybody initially says, wow, this is what we've been waiting for. We've wanted this world ruler who can come in and bring everybody together and and, and initiate a peace in this world. But you know, there's a problem with that because it's a false peace. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, and he said this, while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. Now, those of you, sisters in Christ, who know what it is to have labor pains come on you quickly... Uh, that's the imagery that we have. You know, when we had our first baby, we were in seminary, and Paula was at our house, and I decided to go out for the day, and I'm riding around with my friend. His name's Brady. Some of you guys know him, and we're just having a good old time, and I come back, and Paula is pacing back and forth, and she said, I'm in labor. Now, those were days before cell phones or any of those things. So she was in labor and I was in trouble. (laughs) They came on quickly, much more quickly than I anticipated. And so it was rushed to the hospital and we made it, but not too much time to spare. We need to remember that the events that are described in the Scripture, sometimes we look at them and we say to ourselves, well, you know, Things have just been continuing as they always have, and that means they probably always will. Something the Scripture teaches us is the imminent return of Christ 
And the fact that these events could take place much sooner than anybody anticipates. So here is the tribulation, the beginning of it, this leader that comes on the scene that initially everybody looks at and says, this is great, this is so good to have world peace. We've been waiting for this leader when in reality it's a deception. And it's going to fool an awful lot of people. But then the text goes on. After the first seal is broken, we come to the next part of the passage. And notice it describes in this second seal, verses 3 through 4, that there is carnage that takes place. This false peace cannot and it does not last. Notice it says this, when he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. Now, while the first rider has an empty bow, this guy has a large functional sword. And the picture that is being painted for us is that of blood and devastation. As a matter of fact, I think it's significant that he's riding on a red horse. You see, red is something that is used to describe very bad things in the book of Revelation. For instance, in the 12th chapter, we're going to read about a red dragon, and that red dragon is identified as Satan. Later, in the 17th chapter, we're going to see a red beast who comes on the scene and does horrible things here on earth, causing carnage and blood. So this description of the red horse foreshadows the idea of terrible devastation, terrible destruction being brought on this earth. And as we read this prophecy, what we need to understand is this. While there have always been wars, this is going to be a time period where war is going to be escalated. It's going to be global. You see, generally when we have wars, there are pockets around the world where wars take place. This is going to be a war that encompasses the globe. Jesus warned about this in the Olivet Discourse, and this is what he says. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places, and all these are but the beginnings of the birth pangs. And when we look around the world, we see wars, we hear rumors of wars, we see famines, we see earthquakes, we see natural disasters. All of those are a foreshadowing of what the Scripture describes God is going to bring on this earth as a judgment. Why? Because of the wickedness of men. Then we move on to the third horse. When you have war and you have a destruction of the infrastructure, when you have the collapse of world economies... What happens is this, there is a crash that affects everyone. The Scripture begins the description of this 
in verse 5. And it says this, And when he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. Now, this description of the black horse, it's sharing with us a horse and a rider who will see to famine and economic upheaval in this world. It is a progression. You start with peace, but it's a false peace. You move to war, and it's a devastating war, and then you move to the next seal. And what do you find? Economic collapse. Our economies are crushed. When you look around the world, you can see the aftermath of war. Look at some of the war-torn countries where you go down streets where there were once posh hotels and beautiful architecture, like in Baghdad. And you go there now, and it's riddled with holes. The electric is anybody's guess. Horrible, horrible, horrible images of what has happened after war. You go into some of the African continent where there are ongoing wars, and what do you find? With the war is also famine because the leaders will use that as an opportunity to control people, but also because they're always fighting, they're destroying the crops, they're destroying one another. It's horrible when we see the aftermath of these things. So what the Bible is describing really makes a lot of sense when we think about it. And then Look at the rider holding the scales. Now, what does that mean? In the first century, commerce took place very often with scales. You would weigh the money out. For instance, the shekels or drachma or whatever, denarius, that are going to be mentioned uh, just a little bit in this passage. Uh, that was a weight of silver. And so you would weigh out your commodities, and you would weigh out your money. And so the imagery of this horseman carrying the scale is really imagery of one who comes and brings disastrous world economy. And it's going to affect the people so much that inflation will be crazy. Look at verse 6. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. Now, by the way, um, a denarius would have been about a day's wage. So what he's saying here basically is this. When this time comes, food will cost so much that it'll take you all day to earn one meal for a family. That's it. Now, some of you may feel that that's the case now, but just wait, it's going to get much worse according to the Word of God. So, this crash in the world market, this terrible inflation. As a matter of fact, look at the last part of the sixth verse. It says, do not harm the oil or the wine. The idea is that you better save it. You better not waste any wine or oil because it's going to be so dear, it's going to be out of reach for most people. Then we come to verse 7. And as we come to verse 7, we find that there will be further calamity through war and famine and plague. And this is described by 
the pale horse. Look at verse 7. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come. So this is the fourth of the four horses of the apocalypse. And then in verse 8 it says this, and I looked and behold a pale horse. Now, the word that is used for pale in this passage doesn't just mean that it was beige or light. It's a yellowish green color. And what it really communicates is a sickly color. And what we see that this horseman brings are terrible things on the earth because immediately after describing the color of the horse, notice it says, and the rider's name was death. Listen, on the heels of war and famine comes death and plague. So what the Scripture is telling us will take place is there will be visited upon the earth a terrible plague. And when it says death was his name and Hades followed him, Hades is the place where people who do not know God go when they die. It's a holding place, if you will, until God judges their deeds. And that's described for us later on in the book of Revelation. But what he's saying is, this rider will bring death, and many people will go to Hades to await the final judgment. Now, this is sobering, because it goes on to say, and they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and famine and pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. Now, wow. As far as the four horsemen, this one is the most devastating. This horseman brings death by war, by famine, and by disease. So what he's describing here is so devastating that one quarter of the earth dies. Now I want you to think about that in terms of what our world population is right now. Our world population is seven and a half billion. So if you take a quarter of that, it's just under two billion, 1.9 billion. That many people will die as a result of this pestilence and plague and war. We've never seen anything like that in human history. We've not seen this kind of devastation visited on the world. But what the Word of God is telling us is, this is coming, and we need to be ready. Now, let me encourage you with this. You have co-workers, family members, neighbors, people that you rub shoulders with every day, if they do not know Jesus Christ as their Savior, they face death and Hades as a result of not having that personal relationship with God. Now, we don't know whether these things will take place in our lifetime or a few generations removed. 
but we also don't know that they won't. So what this says to me is as a church, we need to wake up to that. We need to understand what is coming for our world and we need to be ready to know God, to have that personal relationship with Him and we need to share with others so that they can have that personal relationship as well. It's vital that we do that. Listen, these are not just fantasies and things that make for interesting movies. These are events that are going to happen by the Creator on His creation because of their sin against God. And that brings us to the fifth seal. When we come to the fifth seal, you would think, wow, the first four, especially that fourth one, those are pretty intense. Well, it's not over. Bear in mind, the seals are only the beginning of the judgments that God is going to visit on the earth. So, what we find as we come to the ninth verse is something quite different from the first four seals where the first four seals were riders that brought various things like false peace, war, famine, a bad economy, death, all of those things on the world. Seal 5 gives us a glimpse back into heaven. And look at the ninth verse. It says this, And when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. Now here the image shifts from the planet earth to the throne room of God. And there within the throne room of God was an altar. And there at the base of this altar are the souls who have been martyred because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Now, what's intriguing about this image is this. In the temple, there was an altar, and the blood of the sacrifices were, was paid or, or poured, if you will, right at the foot of the altar. This heavenly altar, this scene, describes the blood of these witnesses being represented by the souls that are around the base of the altar. And so it really is imagery that helps us to remember sacrifice, bloodshed. That's what these witnesses, martyrs, have experienced. And what we come to as we look at this is a question. Who are these martyrs? Why are they mentioned in this text? Are these martyrs us. If we right now were to be martyred, would we be in that group? And I would say to you that the answer to that is no. Leave your finger here in Revelation chapter 6 and flip a page to Revelation chapter 7. Because in Revelation chapter 7, starting at verse 13, these martyrs who are described as those who are given white robes in chapter 6 are mentioned once again in chapter 7. And look at the 13th verse. It says, Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, 
Who are those or these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? So it's referencing back to chapter 6, those who were in the white robes that were martyrs, and look at what the answer is in verse 14. And I said, Sir, you know, and he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So what this says to me as we look at chapter 6 and this fifth seal, it's talking about people who will give their lives during the tribulation because they have come to faith in Jesus Christ. And this wicked world will bring judgment upon them as wicked men do the righteous. See, throughout Scripture, we've seen the righteous persecuted, murdered by the wicked. Here in Revelation chapter 6, what the Word of God is talking about are those who will face the tribulation as a part of the tribulation and will be martyred in the tribulation, calling out for justice, calling out for God to have a reckoning for what they suffered. So that brings a question to us. Will we experience the tribulation as the church? And what I want you to do is take a little rabbit trail with me because we're going to address this question. Now, there are a lot of differing positions on what the church's relationship to the tribulation is. Our church holds to the view that we are raptured before these seven years of tribulation, these terrible things that are described. Rapture very simply means that God snatches us away, takes us out of this world into His presence. We believe that that happens before. There are also mid-tribulationists. They believe that right in the middle of seven years of tribulation, and we'll be getting into what this means a little bit more as we progress in our study, I'm letting the book of Revelation determine our pace rather than introducing these ideas to you at the onset. But let me just say this. There are those that believe that right smack dab in the middle of the tribulation that there are people who will be taken out of this world and won't face the horrible, horrible things that transpire for half of the tribulation. There is also pre-wrath. Now, this particular view believes that the day of the Lord is when Christ returns and that as Christ's uh, return happens, He takes us out just before the battle of Armageddon. And then there are post-tribulationists. Right at the end of the tribulation, we're all taken out after everything's over and done with those of us that survive. There are also pan-tribulationists. They believe that will all pan out however it works. Okay? <laughs> now, that being said, let's think about what's going on here. This period of terrible judgment on this world. What's it for? Why is it here? In the Old Testament, the prophet Jeremiah described the great tribulation as a time of Jacob's trouble. Jeremiah 37 says this, alas, that day is so great, there is none like it. It is a time of distress for Jacob, yet 
he shall be saved out of it. Now, here's the idea. In the Old Testament, the prophet Jeremiah is telling us that the purpose of this day of the Lord, this time of wrath, it's a time for God to purge and refine the people of Israel. And so, the seven years of tribulation are described as a time of Jacob's trouble. Now, here's the idea. The church and Israel are not the same, okay? Israel as a nation and as a people is a part of God's promise to Abraham, to Moses, to David. There are covenants that are associated with the nation of Israel. And so this time of tribulation is a time for God to bring Israel back to its senses, to recognize Jesus Christ as the Messiah, and to transform Jacob, Israel, the people of God. It's designed for them, but it's also designed for the wicked. Listen, as God visits these judgments on the world, He is judging a wicked world that has done deplorable, horrible, unimaginable things. And so this is finally God coming to the place to where He says, now there will be a reckoning for what you have done. All of the evil, all of the terrible things that you've done, the bowl of my wrath has filled up and now it's time to spill over. That is not for the people of God. You know, it's amazing as you read the Scripture, you see instances where God judges either the world or a localized gathering, and God brings the righteous out before He lowers the boom as far as judgment. Think about this. Noah. Catastrophic flood on all of the earth. What did God do? He rescued righteous Noah and his family. Think about Lot. Lot was in Sodom and Gomorrah. And just before God leveled Sodom and Gomorrah for their wickedness, what did he do? He rescued Lot and his family. So this imagery of God rescuing people before He brings His judgment on the world is a theme that we find often in Scripture. In the third chapter of Revelation, the Word of God says this, but you have kept my word about patient endurance, and I will keep you from... Now, the word in the original language more literally is, will keep you out of the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. In other words, the great tribulation is for Israel to turn back to God, and it is for this wicked world, this whole earth that has turned away from God, not for the people of God. And so the conviction of the church and your pastor is that we will be delivered before these terrible things take place. The Word of God tells us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, 
and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Now, what we're seeing here is the return of Christ has two phases. The one phase is the rapture of the church. This is where those who are followers of Jesus Christ are taken up, snatched away. And so this is a description of what takes place. Those who have died in Christ will be resurrected, we're told in this passage. But then look as the passage continues and it says, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord always. You know what the Scripture is telling us? That God takes away His followers. He resurrects those who have died in their faith. And he snatches away those who are followers. Later in the fifth chapter, we find this. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet the hope of salvation. Now this text is right on the heels of this passage that talks about the snatching away, the rapture of those who are followers of God. And so what it's saying is we aren't like those who are a part of the night. We are the children of the day. We should live differently now, but then it goes on to say this. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with Him. It's a description to me of what God has for His followers, the church snatching us away, not subjecting us to His wrath. And by the way, when you read the book of Revelation, chapter 6, this is all the wrath of God. In spades, it's the wrath of God. So here are these people who are mentioned here in the sixth chapter who are under the altar... And let's pick it back up at Revelation chapter 6, verse 9, when it says this. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord and holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on earth? And then they each were given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. During the tribulation, this period of seven years of judgment, there will be martyrdom. But you know what this says to me? Not only is there martyrdom, there is opportunity. People can find God during even something as awful as the tribulation. They can turn to Him. They can find forgiveness. They can enter into a relationship with the Father. It might cost them their life when they do so, but the temporary suffering of martyrdom is far outweighed by the blessing of eternal life before God. Then we come to the sixth seal. As we come to seal six, we find that there is a return to the horrible events 
that come with the apocalypse, the end time. And look at the 12th verse because what it describes for us are some cataclysmic global events. It says this, when he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake. Now, when we look in the book of Revelation, it's intriguing. There are three earthquakes that are mentioned. And each one of these earthquakes are devastating. Chapter 16 has what is probably the worst of the three, and it's the final earthquake. And look at how it's described in chapter 16. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. So the tribulation will be a time of cataclysmic global events. And this one is the beginning of it. Look at what the Scripture describes. The sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood. Now, think for a moment about what transpires when there is either a volcano or such a massive earthquake that it splits the earth open. What could be described here and I use and emphasize the word could be because we don't know, but it could be like a super volcano. It could be a meteor that crashes to the earth and causes seismic problems around all of the fault lines on the earth. But look at how it's described. The sun is veiled as if somebody put black sackcloth over it. If you look up after a volcano, what do you see? The cloud. You can't hardly see the sun, and should you see the moon, it just looks like a basic red glow from all the particles that are in the atmosphere. We don't know what it is, but we do know this. It's a horrible event. It's cataclysmic. It's going to bring such devastation and destruction that we could never even imagine what this is like. The Scripture goes on to say this. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. Now, the idea is fig trees drop a lot of figs when it's winter and you shake them. But what's being described here, again, from appearances, we don't believe that literal stars, which are suns, come through our atmosphere because the earth would be swallowed up by a star. But it's the appearance. What happens when you have a meteor shower? It looks like, and we even call them, what? Falling stars. So the imagery that's being described here is the imagery of devastation and destruction that's going to be visited on the earth. And to show you how bad it is, the Scripture goes on to say the sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up. And every mountain and island was removed from its place. Now, think about that. So devastating that mountains are flattened and islands are swamped. This is cataclysmic. But to really show you how bad it is, look at verse 15. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. Now, why do I say this is bad? 
What usually happens when there's catastrophe is the regular folk like us duck and cover. But the kings and politicians and wealthy go to their bunkers and they ride it out. This is such a cataclysmic event that they will have no place to go. All of their favorite hiding places, gone. It's going to be a terrible, terrible day. The prophet Joel said this, I will show you wonders in the heavens and on earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So this is a time that is descriptive of these events. Look at the last part of this passage. You have the great ones, the kings and the wealthy, trying to find a place to hide. Verse 15 tells us that they're going to caves and among the rocks of the mountains. But then look at verse 16. Calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Now, this to me is the most striking part of this passage. You have cataclysm. You have horrible, horrible events. And rather than these people stopping and saying, we have been wrong. <laughs> we need to turn to God because now we're starting to reap the judgment for the wickedness that we've done. Rather than doing that, they say, bury me under a pile of rocks or in a collapsed cave. Rather than turning to God, just let me die. It amazes me that people can recognize that God is on the throne, that this is the wrath of the Lamb, and that they can say such a thing. I would rather die than repent and turn to God. The last statement, verse 17, is this, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Rather than humbling themselves before God, calling out for His mercy, they call out for their own destruction, thinking that perhaps they'll go into oblivion. Well, here's the truth. When we die apart from Jesus Christ, we do not go into oblivion. We go into a place where the wrath of God is visited upon the wicked forever. Those who refuse to turn to God and receive the horrible things of this passage as it's described are people who will face an eternity without God. But here's the wonder of Scripture. God has provided a way of escape. And that way of escape is through knowing the Father through the Son, the Lamb, as He's called in this passage, who was sacrificed for us, who died on the cross, that we might not face the wrath of God. I say these things not to scare you, but because they're in the eternal Word of God. It is God opening the scroll just a little bit so that we can see what's coming.
These are warning passages for those who do not know God. And they're a call to all of us to turn to Him, to find the salvation that He freely gives, that we might miss His wrath. Now, normally I have Dan come up and close in a song, but I've taken you a little bit longer so that we could get through those first six seals. So right now, could we stand and we'll just dismiss in a word of prayer? But let me say this to you. If you do not know where you stand in your relationship with God, TJ had mentioned at the beginning of the service we would love to talk to you. Well, that is particularly true concerning where you spend eternity. We would love the chance to talk with you and let you know where you stand with God, how you have that personal relationship with Him that keeps you from the wrath of God. My hope and my prayer is that you'll have the courage to talk with me or with TJ or with Dan. Any one of us would love the opportunity to share the hope that God gives us in His Word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this fellowship. Thank you for the Word of God. While it's frightening, it is true. And so, God, we praise you for your wrath because that is one of your attributes that we need to accept and praise you for just as we praise you for your love and grace. Father, my prayer is that each one here will experience the grace of God that they might not face the wrath of God. And I pray you this in Jesus' name. Amen.